First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Lord, we need you every moment of every day. We need your grace, mercy, and love. We need your abiding presence, Lord. We pray that we might hear from you now, from your word, and respond in a way that pleases you. Help your people, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have a bit of a confession to make this morning, something you probably don't really know a whole lot about me because of the way I function, but I I would say that I'm a... uh, I'm a recovering radical. What I mean by that is in the past, I have tended to avoid, if at all possible, the ordinary and mundane. Now, I I function, actually, if you know me, I function so much better in the ordinary and mundane, in the day-by-day schedules of it all, no doubt about it. But I do love change. I I do. I, I love the new and exciting. I really feel... Like I was born for adventure. And so if you were to tell me to sell everything that I have and go to China, I'd be like, sign me up, right? I'll be on board. Now, you're talking my language. But, but please just don't tell me that I'm called to labor in obscurity. Please don't tell me that I'm called to the ordinary and mundane routine of life. It can sometimes be suffocating for me. Well, see... In our passage today, what we find are instructions in the ordinary and mundane, the regular acts of service performed in obscurity. It's a command for Aaron, the high priest, to be faithful in the small things continually. Day in and day out, Aaron and his son were to trim the wicks of the lamps to keep them burning. On every day, uh, every Sabbath, I'm sorry, the priests were to take 12 large loaves of bread and place them before the Lord in the tabernacle. These were ordinary tasks performed regularly, and yet they were vitally important to the nation of Israel. See, you remember the feast we studied last week? Last week we looked at the whole chapter of all the many different feasts. Those things were not possible if the small, seemingly insignificant acts of faithfulness were not carried out day in and day out. The extraordinary depends on the ordinary. And that's part of our big idea of our passage today. If I were just to state it clearly, it would be the lamp must be kept burning and the bread must be present. Uh, and fresh, sorry, but must be fresh and present. That summarizes our nine verses in Leviticus 24. And I want to look at what's here in the text. I want to consider what it means, but I want to kind of move through that quickly and spend the majority of our time considering how that should be applied to us, because I think it's important. So let's go ahead and dig in. Let's look at the text itself. Let's go through this, considering all nine verses. Uh, These verses really are about two commands. Uh, These verses really are. They're they're just contained in them two very important commands, but two commands nonetheless. The the very first command was to bring pure olive oil so that Aaron could keep the lamp burning. Bring pure olive oil so that Aaron could keep the lamp burning. That's the first command. From evening to morning, every day, 365 days a year, the light was to be kept on. 
instructions are given on Aaron to how he should perform this task in verses 3 and 4. He is to do it outside the veil. The lamp itself is outside the veil. So if you could visualize it, if you guys are facing the Holy of Holies, don't pretend that I'm the Holy of Holies, but maybe this plant right here. Uh, You're facing the Holy of Holies. On your left-hand side would be the lampstand with the lamp facing the, the table with the, on your right-hand side with the bread on it. Okay, So just picture it. Holy Holy's right here. You're in the tent of meeting. The lamp is over here. It's kept shining bright all the time. It is facing. light is shining on the table. And on the table, there is always fresh bread. The light shining on the bread and those two articles on each side. Okay, so verse 5, we read that not only was Aaron to keep the lamps burning. That's the first command. The second was he was to bake 12 loaves of bread as a statute forever. Each Sabbath, 12 loaves would be placed on that table across from the lampstand. That's what these nine verses say. They're instructing Aaron, the priest, and the people of all Israel is to do as the Lord commanded them. Being obedient in the small details of regular worship. There you go. That's like nine verses and maybe three minutes of exposition. But that's very clear on what the commands were. I want to look now, though, as... What does that mean? What does that mean to us? And and what is the meaning of this in any way, shape, or form? Why are these commands given? What is their purpose? What do they mean for Israel? Well, first I want you to see the picture of the lampstand and the bread symbolize the covenant commitment between the Lord and Israel. The picture of the lampstand and the bread symbolize the covenant commitment between the Lord and Israel. That's exactly what it says in our passage, isn't it? If you look at verse 8, it says, "...being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant." Twelve loaves represented the twelve tribes of Israel. Israel was to live in the light of the Lord, and the bread represented their covenant commitment to serve the Lord continually or regularly. So the the first meaning is the, the picture. The picture was of the lampstand and the bread, and it symbolized the covenant commitment between the Lord and Israel. But what was the purpose? The purpose of these instructions was to ensure in faithfulness, or ensure, ensure faithfulness, excuse me, in ordinary task. The purpose of these instructions was to ensure faithfulness in ordinary task. It is no uh, accident that these instructions come on the heels of the feast. Not that it actually works like this, but just imagine this. Picture this with me, right? If Aaron's gathering all the priests around, and he's asking them, okay, it's time to sign up for certain responsibilities. Uh, you can just picture certain priests being like, hey, bro, I've, I've got Feast of Tabernacles. That's a great celebration. I'm looking forward to it. It's always fun. Maybe there's a weird dude that's like, hey, I'm slitting the goat's throat this week. I'm just, I've had a rough week. I'm ready to go. Let's go ahead and know. I'm sure maybe. I don't know. But, but then Aaron goes through the... The rest of them, and he goes, okay, who, who wants the night shift? You know, you're up all night, you're, you're trimming the wicks, you're just watching the lamp, making sure it's still lit, making sure the oil's burning, everyone else is sleeping, no one knows you're even working or actually doing it. Any takers on that one? Crickets, right? The reality is, listen, we often fail to see the importance of the ordinary, mundane acts of service. But these tasks in chapter 24, they were no less important than the sacrifices or the feasts themselves. Not extraordinary, certainly not glamorous, but critical nonetheless. I want us to think about that very fact. 
I want us to think about the importance of the ordinary and mundane in the day-to-day walk with the Lord as we apply this text. Now, if you've got your bulletin, you're thinking, this is going to be the quickest sermon of all time. (sighs) Thank you, Bob. (laughs) Just were waiting on that, weren't you? Well, I'm about to make a fool out of you. Um, uh, No, I'm kidding. Uh, It's not not the case. Because I, I really do want us to focus on this. This is what kind of just struck me in my... Uh, my time in the Word this week. I actually wanted to preach all of chapter 24, but I just couldn't get past this very idea. See, what this passage actually reminds us is the importance of faithfulness and the ordinary and mundane routines of life. That is the lesson for us. And here's how I want to, to consider this. Here's how I want to make our argument. If you'll bear with me for just a moment... I want to look at this from slightly a different angle. And, and the first angle I want to look at this is I want us to consider the first 30 years of Jesus' life. The first 30 years of Jesus' life. It is my contention that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, of Nazareth, lived a rather ordinary life in his first 30 years. And that ordinary, mundane life was supremely pleasing to the Father. He played, he ate, he learned, he worked, he obeyed his parents, and he worshipped his Father. We are not aware of any major uh, evangelistic efforts during Jesus' first 30 years. We're not aware of, of any extraordinary acts of social reform. Yet... There has never been a more God-honoring life on this earth than that of Jesus. No one has ever pleased God more. Now, I confess, if you're one of those debaters, that my argument is, is that from silence, certainly. Right? I, I suppose Jesus might have done some incredible, awesome deeds of righteousness, something radical during his teens and 20s that just simply isn't recorded in Scripture. Possibly. Maybe. But let's think about it. The the only event the inspired writers of scriptures felt compelled to record about Jesus' earliest years was his visit to his father's house in the temple. At age 12, unbeknownst to his mother and his earthly father, Jesus stayed in the temple in Jerusalem after one of the feasts. And when they realized he was gone, they went back and they found him at that temple. And they questioned him, why did you do this? It scared us. And he responds, did you not know I must be in my father's house? And then we read these words in Luke chapter 2 where we find that story in verse 51. Look at these words. It says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. That's it. My my point is simply that it wasn't just Jesus' last three years of ministry that were pleasing to God. The first 30 years were just as pleasing. Jesus didn't begin pleasing the Father when he began his earthly ministry. Remember, his earthly ministry began where? At his baptism. And, And as baptism, what did the Father proclaim in Matthew 3? This is my beloved Son in whom... I am well pleased. The first 30 ordinary, normal, mundane, average years of Jesus' life lived out before God in quiet faithfulness and obedient gratitude. They were very pleasing to the Lord. Now, some of you might be wondering, what's your point in this? Why are you hammering this down for us? Because I really do believe that many Christians are actually being misled in, in, in a way that's very important. In fact... 
Let me just say, I think it's um, no surprise that, that we live in a culture that emphasizes uh, and even demands the extraordinary. Wouldn't you say? This is the climate of our current culture. Every moment needs to be epic. Every event, larger than life. Our food must be amazing, exquisite. Our romantic relationships must be earth-shattering. Our entertainment must be mind-blowing. We live for the radical. And our church culture is equally obsessed with the next big thing. In fact, well-intending brothers have, have challenged disciples of Jesus Christ to be radical in their faith. I think of one of the most influential books in my life, and perhaps yours, would be Radical by, by David Platt. Right? It's a life-changing book. It's incredible to read, and it's actually a very important book. The book, is, the book is a reaction to the typical evangelical church filled with your nominal Christians living their typical American life. Please hear me. I believe that that book and their concern for writing it is certainly valid. I share it. They looked around the average church in America and they saw that it is full of nominal Christians who claim to love Christ but look like they love the world a whole lot more. These brothers were disturbed by the lack of sincere devotion that they have seen to go to Christ by seemingly misplaced priorities that mark the lives of your average Sunday morning churchgoer. And the reality is... They're right. The churches in America are filled with non-Christians. They're filled with people who are receiving comfort for their dead souls as they walk blindly toward their own eternal destruction. To the extent that these dear brothers spoke boldly against the complacent Christians who show no sign of growth in Christ and no disdain for their own sin. And I gladly stand with them and say, Amen. You cannot serve God and mammon. If you are choosing the American dream, you are running away from God and His blessed purposes for your life. If you value your life more than living for Christ, then in the end, you will lose your life. Even if you love your family more than Christ, you are not worthy to be called His disciple according to Jesus. These are His teachings, not mine or anyone else's. If your ultimate concern is your own temporal physical comfort, you do not know yet the comfort of Christ, which is worth more than all the suffering that life can bear against us. Listen, church, uh, we need to be exhorted, certainly, and that book does a great job, to forsake our allegiance to the American dream and devote ourselves, come what may, to Christ and his gospel. Amen. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with the exhortation to be radical. It can become an attempt to fight a war against a culture by using the tools of the culture. What I mean by that is is the answer to our infatuation with the radical and extraordinary is not just to Christianize the extraordinary and the radical. The, The remedy for the appeal of the radical and extraordinary that our culture dangles before us is not an equally radical and extraordinary law of self-denial and selfless service. Yet for many, extraordinary deeds of love and astonishing sacrifices for the sake of the gospel become the new litmus test for someone's love for God and devotion to Christ. The problem is, is that's actually a reflection of the culture, not scripture. It's obedience to our own cultural norms and not to the call of discipleship in God's word. 
And I believe our passage today is actually what's challenging this. This passage offers much needed biblical balance to our conception of true discipleship. Keep the lamp burning, keep the bread fresh. Have we come upon any more mundane and seemingly insignificant instructions in the book of Leviticus? I mean, that's it. These were instructions for the night crew. These were instructions for the baker. These are not instructions to inspire some great feat of self-sacrifice and exemplary faithfulness. Unless you consider losing sleep to keep the lamp burning each night of self-sacrifice. Unless you consider the weekly presentation of bread an act of exemplary faithfulness. And that, in fact, is exactly how I see it. I do believe that normal... Ordinary work is often the greatest act of self-sacrifice and exemplary faithfulness. That, That this is a picture, this is a true picture of radical discipleship. See, this work in ancient Israel was important. Keep the lamps burning, keep the bread and the covenant fresh and present every Sabbath. It was critical work, it was paramount. Was it fancy? No. It wasn't nearly as glamorous as being the guy who got to offer the animal on the altar. But it was a service in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and it was done continually. It was pleasing to the Lord, though it was radically ordinary and mundane. Listen, church, I, I desperately, I desperately want us to learn this lesson. There are no feasts without this simple, ordinary, obedient act of faithfulness. Day in and day out, faithfulness. One foot in front of the other, faithfulness. Life of obscurity and worldly insignificant faithfulness. That is radical discipleship. In a culture that is infatuated with the epic, the ordinary faithfulness of a husband and father has become extraordinary. Don't you see? It has. It's extraordinary. The church that refuses to capitulate to the clamor for the bigger, brighter, and more sensational events or programs, that's the trendsetter. Faithfulness, by its very definition, is ordinary. Faithfulness does not change. It does not shift nor surprise. It's steady and singular in focus. Faithfulness is long-term, dogged, unrelenting commitment to Christ and His people. Lived out for years in ordinary, mundane relationships. It may not be sexy, but this is exactly what God desires. It's obedience to Christ. And I realize that that some people might be unconvinced by the argument, and rightly so, that that most of Jesus' life was spent in relative obscurity, not doing radical things for the kingdom of God. I can see that point. So let's go ahead and consider Jesus' teaching then. Many of Jesus' teaching seems radical. And it is, at least at face value, right? For example, Matthew 5, one of the more radical teachings of Scripture, if your right eye causes you to sin, go ahead and pluck that sucker out. Cast it from you. That was the message version of that text, right? That's radical. Or how about when Jesus commanded his disciples to to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That seems fairly radical. In fact, it's such a radical statement at the time that most of his disciples, if you remember, stopped following him from that point on. But but setting aside what that is, which is hyperbole and metaphors of those teachings, all of those teachings are meant to bring about the most radical change that any person can undergo. 
salvation. Recognition of a person's hopeless condition before a just and holy God. In a fallen world where people are bent on sin and rejection of God, a singular faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and a steady plodding after their master. That is radical in a fallen world where we're consumed with narcissism and self-worship. Faith and repentance are the extraordinary works required by God. And isn't this exactly how Jesus answered those people who were following him? When they were clamoring for more, asking him what we must do next in doing the works of God, Jesus answered, what do you need to do next? Believe in me whom the Father sent. That's radical enough. See, even our faith and repentance is given to us by God's unmerited grace. Even faith and repentance is ultimately not our own radical work. And some may object and say, yes, but, but really what, we're, what we refer to is after salvation. We're called to live radically for God. Faith and repentance get us started. But then it's really our turn to prove our love for God by just by selling out, living in reckless abandonment for the sake of Christ. Listen, faith and repentance are merely the starting point. They're not merely a starting point. I'm sorry. Faith and repentance are the beginning, middle, and end. It's the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is faith and repentance. Over and over and over again until the Lord calls you home. Hear this. Radical faith strengthened through the ordinary means of grace throughout the ordinary life of a believer, is more pleasing to God than a thousand zealots without knowledge. Say that again. I believe that's in your notes. Radical faith, strengthened through the ordinary means of grace, throughout the ordinary life of a believer, is more pleasing to God than a thousand zealots without knowledge. The reality is, most of us will never leave this country to serve God overseas. Christian, hear me right now. That's okay. Most of us will never speak at a conference in front of 10,000 people. Church, that is okay. In fact, do you think God is more pleased with the person who shares the testimony of God's grace before a crowd of 1,000 than he is with our sweet Annie who shared her testimony in front of 150 this morning? Or our brother Johnny who shared his mission report with his Sunday school class last week or last night? Or let me think about this. Do you think that God's more pleased with somebody who can sell out a mega conference and and preach the the great revival sermon than he is our dear beloved Gene who would come every Sunday morning to his discipleship group and men's group with just the most insightful questions about the word, wanting to know more? Or our sweet Betty Lucas? Let me just tell you this. I have a short testimony. Uh, So Thursday, I went to go see Betty Lucas in the morning. And I just happened to have lunch at Chicken House on that day. If you know Betty Lucas, she would eat there every day if she could. And I'm pretty sure for a while there she did. And I just, I was in the middle of a lunch appointment. I just, I walked up to this, I was getting a refill. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just, I don't know these people. I'm going to, I should, I see them enough. But I, I'm, I'm hey, I'm sorry. I'm, my name's Cody Page. I'm pastor at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables. Do you know who Betty Lucas is? Well, of course. Yeah, Miss Betty. I just want to let you know that she's, she's not doing very well. She's getting ready to pass on. And I mean, as soon as I said her name, 
everybody behind that counter stopped exactly what they were doing and they turned and looked at me and they started getting tears in their eyes and I had their full and final attention and I just said, listen, I know this is simple but she loved this place and, and part of that is just the, the small town atmosphere that you guys created and so as a pastor, I just want to say thank you for loving her well and they all said this, they said, well, we know where she's going. Do you think that God's not pleased with that? Do you think he's less pleased with that than he is? If she were to make some hit album somewhere, selling thousands, that's a hilarious thing to think about, by the way. <laughs> she would crack up at that. Listen, please, please tell me you don't, you don't believe that, right? It's not true. Don't, don't you see that we are being tempted to see things through the lens of our culture and not through the lens of Scripture? Some of us, listen, now some of us praise God. We will be called to do something extraordinary for the kingdom. Yes. Some of us will have a calling placed on our life that is confirmed by our local church. We will be equipped, prepared, and sent to do whatever God has called. But do not be tempted to think that the extraordinary is any more significant in the eyes of God than the small, mundane acts of faithfulness performed every morning and every evening in your own home. Do not be tempted to think that the amazing articulation of the gospel to several of your co-workers is any more pleasing to God than the faithful daily presentation of Jesus to your own children. And in fact, if, if I haven't convinced you yet, I call to the stand the testimony of the apostles. Let's look at the testimony of the apostles. Consider the life and teachings of Jesus. So here come the apostles. What do they teach? Do they call followers of Christ to a lifestyle that should be defined in radicalness, the way the culture defines it? Well, let me say up front, I'm simply offering a sample of verses here. They're, we're going to peruse these. These are simply verses that just came to my mind on, on Monday. And I offer these merely just to get the wheels turning here. My contention is, again, the overall focus of the ethical teaching of Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, is on the corporate life of the church. Certainly not to the exclusion of how we're to live our lives and interaction with our neighbors and the world around us. Not to the exclusion of that, but the focus is on our corporate life together. This is my point. Even the majority of instruction on how to interact with the world, they, they have still a, a corporate flavor to it. The you is, is plural. The exhortations are addressed to the community and they're meant to be demonstrated in the context of community in front of a watching world. I'm going to move some of these quickly. Let's just, uh, just throw some of those out there for you. Uh, Romans 12, 3 through 8. And I would put that with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm not going to read those, but if you know what those are, those are just a list of those gifts that are given to God's people. Those are the spiritual gifts. And, and remember, the point of those passages, Romans 12, 3 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 12, the point of those passages explicitly from Paul is not, not everyone has the same gift, Right? He distributes different gifts to different people for different purposes. Crazy, right? It's a great idea. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 and 24? 17 says, But as God has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Or verse 24, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Paul's addressing, remember, a church that, that felt like it had to do something radical in order to draw nearer to God. But Paul responds with, listen, right where you are called, you can honor and glorify the Lord. 
You need not become something else, go someplace else, nor do something else. Just trust Christ. Learn to love the Lord and walk in obedience to Him right where you are, all for the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, text we know very well. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. See, my point in pulling those two verses is, is that which is walking in a manner of the gospel is unity in the body of the local church expressed in deeds of love. Paul goes on in Ephesians throughout the rest of chapter 4 and 5 to explain exactly what that looks like. The focus, however, is not living as the world does. It is simply in a way that honors Christ in the body of Christ for the good of others. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. There's no command to go and do something different or be something different. There's no exhortation to leave your current place in life, to abandon all you have, to go someplace else to do something different. Wherever you are at, do that as though you're redeemed. That's about as simple as I can make it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we remember this one. I Really 1 through 12, I won't take the time to read the whole section, though we probably should. Just verses 11 through 12. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, amen, to work with your own hands as we've commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. I fail to see how Paul is commanding us to be radical the way the culture defines radicalness in those verses. We're James 4, verse 17, last one. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Church, here's the point. I want you, if I have one takeaway from the sermon, hear this. Be fully convinced where you should be for Christ. If you feel God has placed upon your heart a burden to serve in a certain capacity, in a certain place, then by all means, let the body confirm that and we will graciously support you in that endeavor. But if you're where you're supposed to be, then be all there. Be all there. I confessed at the beginning that radical is very appealing to my heart. I wasn't joking when I said that. But I know what is right. And by God's mercy and grace, I will faithfully serve the sheep at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables until the Lord takes me home when He returns. Amen. Lord willing. I will encourage us regularly in the ordinary means of grace. Lord willing, I will faithfully labor in my study, in my home, and in this building, most likely in relative obscurity. We will, church, Lord willing... Continue to grow in the knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. We will continue to recognize hate and forsake our own sin. We, Lord willing, our ordinary lives will be an extraordinary offering of praise to our God until the day Christ returns. Now hear me. I, I know, you know this is our favorite saying. I know there's a ditch on both sides, right? Let me repeat. I understand the concern of our brothers who have called many to a radical version of Christianity. They stand against materialism, complacency, 
comfort and nominalism. And you've heard me from this pulpit stand with them. Yes, absolutely. I understand being concerned with the current landscape of Christianity. We all should. But here's the point. The, the answer is not works. No matter how good they may be, calling dead people to give more and go further is not going to bring them to life. Calling our brothers and sisters who are struggling to be faithful where God has placed them to prove their love for Jesus by doing something extraordinary is not the answer. Christian mothers, please hear me. You are exactly where God has placed you. Serve your families faithfully where you are. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. And by God's grace, you will serve your your home, your children, your husband, and Lord Almighty till the day He comes and takes you home. Praise God for you. Fathers, you have a charge set before you in the Scriptures. It's clear. It does not necessarily command you to go further nor give more. It commands you to give all that you have for the sake of your wife and your children. Daily, evening, and morning and faithfulness. Day in, day out, one foot in front of the other. Dogged commitment to the responsibilities the Lord has given you. Not looking for the horizon for some extraordinary thing that you might do for the kingdom of God. When God has placed more than you can possibly handle right in front of you. But by His grace, we will be faithful husbands. We will be faithful fathers, wives, mothers, brothers, and sisters in Christ right here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. It may not be fancy. And if you're visiting with us, the more you get to know us, you'll see. It ain't fancy. (laughs) But listen, it will be pleasing to God. In conclusion, I don't care what you challenge me to do. As long as I'm at the center of it, it will fail. The reality about this passage is that it's not ultimately a call for us to be more faithful so the light doesn't go out and the bread stays on the table. The call of this passage is to look to Jesus Christ, who is the true and better Aaron, who is the light that will never go out, who is the presence of God who will never fade away for the people of God. That covenant will never be forsaken because He has assured we have a new and eternal covenant. He's the one who has to be our focus. He has to be our life and celebration. So I want to challenge you. Here's my challenge this morning. I I simply want you to join me in praying that we would be faithful to Christ and His Word. Whether that means we exist in relative obscurity with a small number of people who gather every Sunday, or whether God sees fit to grant us many more. My desire is simple. I, I just pray that we would be faithful, corporately and individually. To wherever God calls us, we would be all there for His glory. And that we would not be tempted to measure our success according to the culture. Church family, the ordinary and the mundane is pleasing to our Lord. Let us be faithful in that. Would you stand as we pray this morning? Gracious Father, I know in my own heart... The temptation is great. But Father, I thank you that you've graced us with the opportunity to be faithful in the small things that have a huge impact. Lord, you've given us the privilege to be fathers, 
Husbands, mothers, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. You've called us to work in places surrounded with dead people. You've called us to live in communities with hurting, languishing families. I pray that your church would see the need is not necessarily for us to do something extraordinary and radical, but to turn back to Christ, to trust in Him, to know that He is worth all of our life, all that we have, that we can find our joy in Him. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in that, to never grow weary of looking to Christ and in His name doing good. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen, church. Thank you. you may be seated. Invitation is pretty simple this morning. If you're here, and, and, and look, maybe the Lord has stirred you and has called you to an extraordinary work for, for His glory, whether it's a call to ministry or go overseas and missions or whatever it is. We, we want to respond to that. We want to obey that, certainly. But I do believe that the measure of this church and many that I'm speaking to these days need to hear that, that your faithfulness in the ordinary and mundane does not mean that you do not love the Lord. And, and even more so, it doesn't mean that you aren't faithful. Uh, but be all there. That's the, that's the call, right? So if you're here this morning and, and you just, you've so wrestled or struggled with this, let this be a message of grace for you. Uh, to invest even deeper in that which we know is called, God has called you to do. That we as a local church can encourage and equip you in any way uh, that will be helpful. That is our role and responsibility, and we love you. Maybe you're here this morning, and you, you recognize that faithfulness is not on your radar. That the reality is, even in the ordinary mundane, you have no desire to be faithful in. This is not an excuse for you. It's a call to hear the message of the gospel. That the ruler of all creation, God in heaven, created you for this very purpose, to bring him honor and glory. You cannot on your own do that, because your father Adam sinned, and you inherited... Uh, his sin, his rebellion against his good creator, God, meaning you want to serve yourself as king and not the Lord. There's a penalty for that because it's God's universe, not yours. And that penalty is judgment, it's a wrath, a punishment that we all deserve by our sin. That he lays upon us if we do not um, worship him the way that we should. But that's the problem is we can't do it on our own. And so this, this same God, this holy, just, wrathful, pure, good God, Send his son Jesus, fully God, fully man, to live a perfect life for you and I. A life that we should live but cannot live on our own merit. But Jesus did. And he fully accomplished all the Lord's will. And because he never sinned, he did not deserve the just punishment and wrath of the Lord. And yet, he bore it. He willingly took on the wrath and punishment for our sin. And in that, he gives us the gift of his standing. His righteousness, His perfection, His blood and His sacrifice, it actually covers us so that if we are in Him, if we're found in Him, the Lord no longer looks at us and sees our sin. He instead sees the perfect obedience of His Son on us. That's a great gift. And the reality of the gospel is if we receive this gift by repenting of our sins and turning away from us being Lord and declaring that that Jesus is our King and then faithfully entrusting ourselves to Him day in and day out, and believing in Him, resting in His finished work, that it truly did accomplish our salvation, that we can inherit eternal life through our great God and Savior. So if you haven't done this, 
Right After that, then starts the walk of faithfulness. Then you are enabled and given the Spirit of God which empowers you to walk in faithfulness. It's secured in His resurrection and you can live victoriously over sin today. But if you haven't done that, there's never been a point in time in your life where you've truly given your heart and life to Christ. Then let today be the day of salvation for you. Pastor Justin will be down front and he'd love to talk with you. I'll be at the back of our uh, sanctuary here. I'd love to talk to you as well. Uh, Make today the day. The Lord saves you.